Open your Bibles to the book of Galatians 5. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Galatians chapter 5. We began last week studying the fruit of the Spirit, and I brought to our attention that the fruit of the Spirit can summarize the entire doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of slowly becoming like Jesus. That is what sanctification is. It is a long process. Sanctification is like cleaning the house. Justification is like receiving the title deed. Justification happens in a moment. Two seconds ago you weren't justified, now you are. It happens in a moment completely. There's no such thing as being 10% justified. You either are completely justified or you are not. Justification happens in a moment. I think many people are confused about this. And so they do not understand the Christian doctrine of salvation. Justification happens when? In a moment, in a second, in the twinkling of an eye. It is when God puts on your account all of the righteousness of Christ. That is the gift of faith, the result of faith. As soon as a person is marked down... As a righteous man, he begins a long, slow process to clean the house. And no matter how long you live, the house will never be perfectly clean because of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But you're going to keep working on it. What mother can ever clean her house perfectly? But because she cannot do it perfectly, does she stop trying? That would be a miserable house to grow up in. The doctrine of sanctification means you're cleaning the house. You're always working on it. You're changing little by little. Sanctification is what we have summarized in the fruit of the Spirit. And much of the New Testament is given over to sanctification. How do you clean your house? How do you slowly become like Jesus Christ? That is the doctrine of sanctification. Kids, after the service tonight, I'll ask you, what is sanctification? And you can tell me, cleaning the house. Or you can tell me, The long process. Or you can tell me, slowly becoming like Jesus. If you tell me something other than that, you got it wrong. And don't confuse it with what? Justification. When does justification happen? In a moment. In a second. God writes you down as a righteous man. Before he writes you down, you're on your way to hell. After he writes you down, you're on your way to heaven. 
But tonight we are studying the doctrine of sanctification as we began last week. Love is a glorious virtue. You want to be loved and you want to be more loving. You want to be near those people who have the purest love because it is glorious. Let me show you why it is glorious. It is glorious because it is the supreme mark of Christianity. John 13, 34. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you do what? Have love one for another. Not if you evangelize. Not if you come to church. Not if you know the whole catechism. How will everyone know that you are Christ's disciple? If you love. It's glorious because it is the supreme mark. It is glorious because it is the summary of the whole law. Luke 10 verse 27. And Jesus answered and said, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on that. Do you love? So it is glorious because it's the, it's the greatest mark. It's glorious because you can summarize all of the ethical demands of the Bible. It is glorious because love is the great indication of the glory and dignity of God. If I asked you what is the greatest indication of the majesty of God, what would you say? He is all powerful. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He is wise. He is creative. He is holy. I would submit that the greatest indication of the honor and dignity and glory of God is his love. First, his love for the Son and his love for the Spirit and the Spirit's love for the Son and for the Father and then the Son's mutual love for his Father and for the Spirit. The inter-Trinitarian love that bound them together. And then that love was so great, it seemed to spill over to the creation. And men were loved Can it be in John 17, verse 26? The love wherewith you have loved me may be in them. The love that the Father had for the Son can spill over to people, can be poured out on God's creation. I think a case can be made, and I make it tonight, that love is the greatest Indicator of the dignity and glory of God. It is love that became the greatest of his ethical demands. And it is love 
that marked out the giving of the Son on the cross. It is love that is called the greatest of the virtues. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Now compare that with our world. We live in a self-centered world. Look at our adverts. What does every advertisement urge you to do? Feed yourself. There are very few advertisements that will say, come buy our product because it will make other people happy. I wrote down three adverts that I've seen. Sprite, have you seen this one? It used to be a large billboard in Elam. Obey your thirst. Did you ever see that one? Sprite, obey your thirst. What is it teaching you? When you want something, you take it. Why didn't the billboard say, buy Sprite to make your mother happy? It didn't say that. Why didn't it say, buy Sprite because people love Sprite. Give it to people because they love it. No, give it to you. Obey yourself. That's our world's message. Snickers, you are not you when you are hungry. What is Snickers telling you? The greatest thing in life is to be, be yourself. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the greatest thing is to be like Jesus. Snickers says, focus on yourself and go buy our snack so that you can really focus on yourself. Renault, the car maker, put an advert that I saw in Mpumalanga. There's no right way or wrong way, just my way. And that was on top, and then there's a picture of a car. What are they saying with that advert? There's no right way, there's no, there's only my way. What are they saying? They're saying, do what you want. Don't think about if it's good or if it's bad. Anything you want, any thought that comes into your mind. You want the girl? Take her. You want the money? Take it. You want to buy? Buy it. Whatever you desire, do it. That's what they're saying. That is self-centered. And it is exactly opposite with Christianity. The Bible says in Luke 9, 23, take up your cross every day. What do you do with a cross? Die to yourself. If we are going to be mature Christians, we must oppose this aspect of our culture. And I want to warn you right now, I believe that everyone here is more influenced by their culture than they realize. If I asked you, are you a selfish person, you would probably say no. But if I asked you, is the culture selfish, you would all say yes. Do you think the culture has no effect? We are greatly influenced by the world around us. 
And we need prolonged time to reflect on what is biblical love. So tonight, let me give you several points. Observations from scripture and church history on biblical love. First of all, let me take you to 1 Corinthians 13. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Two books back from Galatians. Love is found, mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. More than any other virtue. And this entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 is given over to love. The famous description of love is in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Let's look at these descriptions. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast itself, is not proud. Verse 5. Love does not behave itself in an inappropriate way. Love does not seek her own. Love is not easily provoked. Love does not think evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. What do you notice about this list of 16 traits? Notice first of all that every one is an action verb. It's something you must do. Love acts. Love is not something that you can hold without acting and doing. You cannot sit still with love. It must go. God so loved the world that he... It does not say that he sat in heaven and watched. God loved so he gave. Love is an action verb. Sixteen of these are action verbs. They're full of activity. But notice this about love. It's negative. How many times does it say not in that list? Count them up. How many times does it say not? In verse 4, charity, love suffers long and is kind. Charity does not envy. It does not provoke itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave itself inappropriately. It does not seek her own. It is not easily provoked. It does not think evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. How many knots do we have? Did you count them with me? Eight. A full 50% of the definition of love is what not to do. That's good logic. And that's good rhetoric. The ancient Greeks told us that if you want to explain something well, tell us what it is, and then tell us what it is not. Thank you, Paul. I know that love is patient, but I also know love does not envy Thank you. I know that love is kind, but I also know that it's not boastful. With love, 
you need to make sure that you are constantly doing something and you need to make constantly sure that you are not doing something else. If you have a chain mesh fence, just wire mesh, and a little dog, what will you find very soon? The dog gets out. And so you'll take some wire and wire up that spot and he'll get out somewhere else. And you wire that one and he gets out somewhere else. And if you're going to stop that little dog, you've got to be always working just to take care of that animal. If you have an irrigation system through your yard, you may find like I did, that when I was working in my yard, I would forget exactly where the pipe is and I would cut the pipe. And off I go to the shop to get a coupler and a joint. How many times have I put couplings and joints in? You've got to watch constantly. If you come into an old house, you turn the tap on, water comes out. But then the leak comes. You block one leak and then another leak comes. Love is something that you are going to have to constantly do something and also constantly look out to make sure you're not doing something else. Because while you are over here trying to be patient, right in the back door is going to come all these bad things, pride and envy. And you're focusing on being patient and you don't even realize that the negative has come in. And when you're focusing on the defense, you're blocking envy and you're blocking pride and you're impatient with your wife. Have you found that to happen? Just when you focus on one good thing to do, a bad thing slips in the door. And when you turn to stop that one, good things go out the other entrance. You think, I can't possibly keep all this up. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. When I told Ivor Jeffries that I was preaching on this passage... This week, I told him I was preaching on this, and it was so rewarding to study it. And he said, what a wonderful text for your sermon. I have to pray for that all the time. And I thought, that's a rebuke to me. How often do you pray that you would be filled with love? 1 Corinthians 13 gives us, this remarkable list of verbs. Let me show this to you as well. In this list, what is love always doing? Love suffers long. Or maybe your Bible says love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envying, it's not proud. If you will look at every one of these, you will see love is denying itself. Love is constantly saying no to me. And in that, it's, it's the perfect introduction for the fruit of the Spirit. Because what's the last one of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. The first one is Stop pleasing yourself and please others. And the last one is, stop pleasing yourself. It's like two bookends to hold everything in. 
If you are going to be a loving person, it means you must say no to yourself. Years ago, we began the practice of teaching our children one virtue every month. We would repeat them every year, every other year. When we did self-control, our definition was self-control, saying no to the things you want. And that's love. If you are a loving man, you've got to say no to yourself constantly. So husbands, love your wives means husbands Say no to the things you want in front of your wives. So that your wives can have what they want. Or, according to our memory verse for this week, outdo one another in showing honor. Have a competition with your wife and say, okay, honey, we're going to compete and I'm going to beat you. I'm going to show more love to you than you can show to me. That's a great way to compete. 1 Corinthians 13 is the biblical definition and description of love. But there's one more thing I'd like to draw to your attention about this description. Not only is it self-denying, not only is it an action verb, not only is it negative as well as positive, but the fourth point under this section is love is always directed toward others. There is nothing in this list That is directed toward yourself. And the foolish idea that our world has of self-esteem is unbiblical and sinful and wicked. You won't find anything in the Bible to promote self-esteem. Ezekiel 36, 31. One of the verses we're memorizing this year. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds which were not good. And you will loathe yourselves. Loathe means to hate or despise yourselves. I was told once by a pastor that you should not tell people to hate themselves. Then why did Ezekiel tell us to do it? When you see your sin, you will loathe yourselves. Why does our Lord Jesus tell us in Luke 14 verse 26? You cannot be my disciple if you do not hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and your own life also. True love is always directed toward others. Except in one account. What is the one way in which you may and should and must love yourself? Only one way. In all other ways, you need to be focused outward and loving someone else. But in one way and only one way, you must love yourself. Uh, You must love yourself because you must try to, you must love yourself enough to save yourself from hell. You must seek your soul's salvation. You must love yourself in this way to seek your soul's conversion. Because when you love yourself in that way, you're really loving Jesus. Because when you come to conversion, 
You're exalting his glory and his grace. That is the only way in which we should love ourselves. To seek our own soul's conversion. And anything, any love other than that is actually self-hatred. If a man feeds his flesh in every way, but rejects or neglects his own soul's conversion, he has actually hated himself and he has hated God. 1 Corinthians 13 is the definition of love in the Bible. But the Apostle John uses this word as well, love. I won't have you turn there. I've already quoted John 13, 34. By this all men will you know that you love, that you have love for, um, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And John is called the apostle of love because he uses this word more than any other writer in scripture. John teaches us a number of things about love that I'd like to share a few of them with you. Number one, John first of all says that all love comes from a love triangle. Can you guess who is in the love triangle? The Father, the Son, I knew you would say the Spirit, but it's not. Let's go see it. John 3, verse 35. Go in your Bibles to John 3, verse 35. This is really remarkable. You know that our religion must be true because no one else would write like this. John 3.35, who loves who in John 3.35? The Father loves the Son. Go to chapter 5, verse 20. Who loves who in chapter 5, verse 20? Who is it? The Father loves the Son. Go to chapter 10, verse 17. Who loves who? In chapter 10, verse 17. The Father loves the Son again. Chapter 14, verse 31. Who loves who in 1431? The Son loves the Father. Now, what we have seen for all of the ministry of Christ is the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. But now, the night before Jesus dies, look at what he says. Chapter 15, verse 9. Who loves who? The Father loves the Son, and then what? Yes, the Son loves them so that what? So they will continue in His love, and they will love Him. Look at, chapter, uh, look at the next verse, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Look at chapter 17, verse 23. 
Who loves who in verse 23? Who loves who in chapter John 17, 23? No, it's not Jesus. The Father loves who? Who does the Father love in verse 23? The people that you have loved them. Do you see that? You have loved them. Who's the them? It's God's people. How has God loved them in verse 23? In the same way that you have loved me. Does that boggle your mind? God, infinite, eternal God, has loved himself and loved his son and given out to his people such a glorious gift that they will be and are loved with the kind of love that he only gives to his only begotten son. Same thing in verse 24. Father, I will that those also whom you have given me would be with me where I am, that they would behold my glory, which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 26. That the love that you have loved me with might be in them. This is absolutely mind-boggling. And John Owen says, the problem that keeps Many Christians immature is superficial views of the love of God. Did you hear that? Many Christians do not progress in their Christian life because they do not progress in their understanding of the love of God. And he even says in his book on the glory of Christ, he even says, many people are content to merely say, oh, I know that Jesus died for me, so he loves me. And that is the end of their comprehension of the love of God. John does not want us to stop there. And neither does John Owen. So the first point I point out from John's writing is this. The same love that God has for his son, he also pours out on his people. Let me point the second observation out from John's writings. John tells us what it means to love. Look in chapter 15, verse 9. What does it mean to love? Chapter 15, verse 10. John 15, verse 10. What does it mean to love? Yeah. Obey. Look at chapter 14, verse 21. 1421, he that has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved of my father and I will love him. What does it mean to love Jesus in John 1421? Obey. I don't want excuses. I don't, don't tell me it was raining outside. Don't tell me you lost your job. Don't tell me you were sick. Obey. When you obey, you are loving. That obedience is the demonstration of love. And notice this. Go to 1 John, the little book of 1 John. Two more points here from the writings of John. 
1 John 3, 16. You're used to John 3, 16, but let's see 1 John 3, 16. How do we know the love of God? 1 John 3, 16. How do we know the love of God? Because Christ laid down his life for us. We cannot know the love of God outside of that, which means that is the pinnacle of God's love. There are other demonstrations of his love, but that is the peak. That is why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross. That's why I press you to remember the cross, to think much of the five solas, because they encapsulate this. If we would know what love is, we must be Christians who are focused on the sacrifice of Jesus. If we would know much of God's love, we would be Christians who know much of the life and death of the Lord Jesus. If you have not mastered atonement, propitiation, substitution, resurrection, if you have not pondered that kind of sacrificial love, if you don't know what those are, if you have not experienced them, you are in grade R of love. The way we know what love is, is by thinking of how Christ gave himself for us. The cross is the definition of love. It is the greatest communication of God's love for us. How is it that we would know what it means to love our neighbor? If we will read the Bible carefully, we will have such a full view of ethics and philosophy if we'll just read the Bible carefully. Look at 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3. What does this passage tell us about love? 1 John 5, 2 and 3. First John 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. Okay, how do we know that we love other Christians? When we love God and do what? So if I don't obey God's commandments, then who do I not love? God or who? His children. I do not love you Christians unless I obey God. God commands me to read my Bible. Psalm 1 verse 2. If I do not read my Bible, I don't love you. Lloyd, when you ask us if we're reading our Bibles, it's a question, do we really love each other? You say, I was too busy this week. You were too busy to love me? Why don't you just say that next week? Next week you stand up and say, how many of us loved each other seven days this week? How many of us loved each other six days this week? When we obey the commands of God, we are loving each other. You know what that means. Who encourages you the most to draw near to Christ? Isn't it the most dedicated Christian? Right? 
If you get near to a Christian who is dedicated and active serving God, his life urges you to draw near to Christ. And when you draw near to Christ, you are honoring God and you are helping those around you. That Christian's obedience to the law of God was the best thing for your spiritual life. He loved you most when he helped you to get near to Christ. And how does he help you to get near to Christ? Give himself to the Bible. If you will be a dedicated Christian, you will love your brothers and sisters. Don't talk to me about, oh, it's your birthday. I'll send you a card. I'll send you a text. Happy birthday. Oh, we love you, pastor. If you want to love me and give me a birthday present, obey Jesus in October. Read your Bible in November if you want to give me a birthday present in April. If you really love your pastor, obey God. That will be the best gift you can give him. And pastors, if you love your people, you will be a godly, obedient man. John has so many rich messages for us. These are just a few of them. Obedience is a very important part of love. So then what is love? Can I give a little definition now? Love is, I'll give you three definitions. Love is delighting to bring joy to someone else. Being happy to bring joy to others. Or love is obeying God's laws. Or love is honoring someone else. By believing the truth. Honoring someone else by obeying and believing the truth. So love is either honoring someone else, or obeying God's laws, or delighting in the happiness of others. And when I say the happiness, I mean the final and ultimate happiness. If someone wants alcohol, if someone wants sin, If you really love them, you will not give them that sin because that sin will only make them happy for a short time and then it will end in death, James 1 verse 16. But if you draw them to become like Jesus, you'll make them happy for all eternity. Let me now give you three common traps that stifle biblical love. Three common traps that discourage biblical love. I'm going to try to do these for each of the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm going to guard myself because I made a long list of the traps that stifle love. And what I found is it's the same traps that stifle every virtue. So I'm going to try to pick specific virtues or specific difficulties that stop each virtue. Here are the best three I could discern. And I also gathered from good books. Three common traps that stifle biblical love. Selfishness. Because love is reaching out to others, serving others, denying yourself and giving to others. When selfishness comes in, you will be sure to lose your love. What husband doesn't know what that's like? He wanted to serve his wife. He planned to serve his wife. And an unexpected turn, and now he's being selfish again. 
suppressing his own rights and his own desires. And when selfishness comes in, love leaves. Our world tells us that we need to love ourselves. You need, quote, me time. That's worldly. That's not biblical. A second common trap, gossip. Gossip deserves to be in this list because James chapter 3 says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, and it starts many other fires. If you would love someone, put out the fires in their home. And what starts more fires more than the tongue? In fact, James says, if anyone can keep from sinning with his tongue, he's a perfect man. Secondly, I was reading a book by Hugh Binning this week. And he mentioned, uh, Hugh Binning was a Puritan in the 1600s in Scotland. And Binning mentioned, gossip is one of those sins that destroys love. Here was his argument. Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke often one to another. And the Lord remembered it and wrote in his book all the times that Christians speak to one another. But Binning says this, I read that Christians must speak to one another, but I never read that Christians are told to speak about one another. And in Proverbs 19, verse 10, it says, In many words, there will definitely be sin. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. So Binning says, If you talk much about someone else, you will definitely sin against that person. The more words you give to talking about someone else, the more temptations you put to sin against that man. How many of us sin by gossiping? Here's what we commonly will say. I'm just telling you about this guy so that you can pray for him. When in reality, you're talking because you like that. You like that taste of saying bad things about other people because it makes you feel good. Maybe, the, maybe those people really are good. But by pushing them down, you feel like you've made yourself better. You never make yourself better by making others worse. <clears throat> the third common trap that stifles biblical love. If you ponder the list in 1 Corinthians 13, I think this will come to your mind immediately. Or if you just try to obey the list, it will come to your mind immediately. Exhaustion. Nicarelli. Endoneta. Hey, I'm too tired. It is exhausting to love people. And people are very needy, which is why wives can forget to show love to their husbands. They're around their husbands all the time, and they think, you all think that man is, he's a good, strong man, because you don't have to live with him. If you lived with him, you would see it's hard to live with that guy. You've always got to be on your game. If you sit back for a minute, you're going to lose something. It's exhausting 
to love another sinner. You can't just work at it in the morning. You've got to work at it all day. You've got to constantly be expecting. Let me just expect that he's going to say something to me that I don't like. It's tiring. It wears you out and wears you down. And so it can be a trap for you. Is exhaustion a sin? Is it a sin to be exhausted? No. Unless one of two things is true. No, it's not a sin to be tired. Unless one of two things is true. If this is true, then you're sinning. If you're tired because of this, then you're sinning. Alvina, are you interested now? Number one, if you are tired because you have chosen to give all of your strength to unimportant things, that's a sin. You should have chosen, in Matthew 23, verse 23, you should have chosen justice, uh, love, justice, and faith, not to pay tithes. And because you wasted your time and your strength on that, it's a sin, Jesus told them. Give your heart and your mind to the most important things first. I find myself commonly doing small, unimportant things in an excellent way. And then doing the most important things in a poor way. Is that like you? Do you do that too? You should give your best energy to reading the Bible, but instead you pick the Bible up at 9.45 at night when you're exhausted, and the only reason you pick it up is, oh, Lloyd's going to ask us again Sunday night. I better read. And you read for seven verses, and then you fall asleep. And you didn't learn anything because you gave the very worst part of your day to it. You give the best part of your day to these things that you love, And you give the worst part of your day to this other thing. Did you really love God? Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. Some pastors love to preach about the tithe from Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. They say, honor the Lord with your money. Give him your money. The first of your money. That's true. But what it means more than that is... Give God the best of your energy and your time. Give Him the first of your time and your energy and your life. Don't say, I'm going to make money, I'm going to retire, and then I'll serve the Lord. Don't say, I'm going to get up and wash and bathe and eat breakfast and go to work, and then on my lunch break I'll read my Bible. Give the best of your time to the Lord. Exhaustion is a sin if you have sinfully depleted your strength with unimportant things. A book that Amy and I are reading right now is called The Disciplined Life. And in that book he says, one of the keys to discipline is one word. Do you want to hear the word? If you want to be disciplined, it's one word. It starts with an S. Selection. You have to choose what to give your time to. I need that help, don't you? Second thing, exhaustion might be a sin if number two is true. If you have failed to take strength in Christ. Ephesians 6 verse 9 commands us, 
Be strong in the Lord. Are you exhausted spiritually because you have not taken strength in Christ? Perhaps you have. Perhaps you have prayed and fasted and looked to Jesus, but you just need a break. Then in that case, go rest. Go take a break. But perhaps you are exhausted because you are working in your own strength. You never even prayed to God that you would mount up with wings as eagles. Isaiah 40 verse 31. Have you even asked for that one time? I know you felt tired. Have you ever prayed, God, give me wings. I'm I'm, I'm an eagle walking. How far is an eagle going to go if he walks? Give me wings, Lord God. Have you ever prayed, make me strong in Christ? If you haven't prayed for that, if you have not taken strength in Christ, then it may be a sin to be exhausted. Well, my time is up. But not my subject. The second half next week? It is, right at halfway. I think that's what we're going to do. Brothers and sisters, let us give ourselves to love because the second half was the most important part of the message. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would make us loving people and forgive us for being so disinterested in holiness and in love and in righteousness. Please make us godly Christians. Make us loving Christians. Make us willing in the day of your power. Please make us strong in the Lord Jesus that we might be able to love as he loved. I pray that you would mount us up with wings as eagles. Guard us from gossip that we would not speak evil of those around us. Protect us from selfishness. May we be guarded from these dangers that we might obey those 16 action verbs in 1 Corinthians 13. In Jesus' name, amen.